of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. Those who heard the cultural baggage program last week heard us talking about the uh, conference uh, that was held by the uh, National African American Drug Policy Coalition. And uh, I'm proud to have with us a man who is running for governor in the state of Connecticut. And uh, he perhaps wants to give his interpretation of that program, uh, Mr. Cliff Thornton. Thanks, Dean, for having me. I listened to that program, and I understood from a great vantage point uh, why these people were talking this way, and it, it just surely made my, my um, blood boil. I fairly understand that this approach to the drug war has to be a multi-pronged attack. But if, in fact, all we're talking about t is teaching and education, we've missed the boat. These are policy people, basically, that are dealing with this problem. And they know that by leaving the policy intact, what we're creating is still a in the door and back out of the door, and then you come back with this treatment because they're not going to return to anywhere but the same place where they came from making it much more difficult for them to beat their addiction and stay away from drugs. In many respects, it is like giving a reformed alcoholic a job in a package store. So I thoroughly believe that this approach and some of the rhetoric that was used was just thoroughly appalling. As long as that black market is in place, as long as that the world's largest multi-level marketing organization is out there waiting to entice, to lure, uh, to perhaps just get them to uh, make money for their family selling these illegal drugs. It is going to be a trap. See? Yes, th that is absolutely correct, Dean. We have to end drug prohibition. And the only way you're going to do that is to bring these drugs inside of the law. There's three concepts I use. I'd love to see cannabis and hemp legalized outright. When we look at this thing perfectly, I'd like to see alcohol, cigarettes, and cannabis sold out of one place. We all know that hemp is used for clothing, food, and uh, paper. And I'd like to see that develop with tons of research to make it much more uh, profitable. Now, when we talk about the other drugs, heroin, methamphetamine, ecstasy, and cocaine, I would like to see those medicalized and handled by the doctors and the health profession. All of the rest of the drugs should be decriminalized for future debate and true and honest medicinal study. However, the only thing that they talked about basically was treatment and education, and I'm all for that. That is a very important component of the whole drug situation. But if you don't stop the entry of these people into the prison system, then things are going to get exceedingly worse or pretty much stay the same. The thing that I emphasized over and over, and when we were in California, I hope people got it, is the phrase that I use over and over again. If one does not understand racism, 
classism, white privilege, terrorism, and the war on drugs, what these concepts mean and how these terms work, then everything else you do understand will only confuse you. And the emphasis here is on classism. Because if you look at those people that were at that conference, they are definitely a class, let's say, above not only most of the black people, but a lot of the white people, too, as far as economically uh, being secured. I think one of the people on the panel was the mayor of Houston, and he was the drug czar. I think uh, Brown, I think his name was. Th those concepts, you have to understand and look at them for what they are. Because when you look at apartheid, you see how apartheid stayed in place so long is because they had blacks doing the jobs that normally would be held by whites. That way, they became informants and, and a lot of other things. But And you see it in the, the truth-telling um, apparatus that was put up after apartheid, uh, and they spoke of the same things. So... In many respects, these, this type of organization is needed, but in, in another respect, they've got to do a lot more. And when people make statements that if drugs are legalized, then the problem will get, get exceedingly worse within the black and Latino community, what message is that sending to the rest of the world? What is it actually saying? It's actually saying that blacks and browns are not strong enough to, risk, to resist the temptation that they, they have before them. And I don't believe that for, for one second, because I know many people that uh, don't do drugs anyway. You, the thing when the guy talked about culture, that made a lot of sense, too, because there is a culture of drugs, but it's a culture of drugs all over the world. Now, if, in fact, they were made safer to use, then we would be averting all the problems that we're going through. All right. Uh, once again, we've been speaking with Mr. Cliff Thornton, running for uh, governor in the state of Connecticut. Cliff, uh, give him your website, please. Uh, it's votethornton.com. Do you, do you have a, a, a closing comment you might like to make in this regard? Yes. L looking at the conference and, and hearing what's coming out of the conference, it reminds me of uh, the um, rhetoric that was used during slavery when uh, it was going through its, its slow but sure demise. And we, there were subjects broached that would make it a little lenient when they talked about, well, let's put in the uh, doctrine that the slave owners cannot beat their slaves on Sunday. And that is the way in which I'm looking at uh, some of a lot of the conference. However, don't get me wrong, this is part of the multi-pronged attack, but it is only one part of it. The biggest part is ending drug prohibition. This is Cliff Thornton, Green Party candidate for governor of Connecticut. Okay, welcome to this edition of Century of Lies. We uh, kind of changed the format a little bit here today, but I am Dean Becker, your host, and we do have with us online Mr. Paul Armentano, uh, who represents the uh, National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Hello, uh, Paul, are you there? Yes, I am, Dean. How are you? I'm quite well, sir. Uh, you know, uh, you sent out an email, or I caught it on the Internet somewhere, that uh, showed that you had uh, compiled 
uh, a list of uh, about 120 uh, studies that have been done uh, since the year 2000 in regards to the safety and efficacy of marijuana. Let, let's talk about those, if you will. Give us kind of a summary of what you found. Sure. Uh, basically what happened is I have been reporting in bits and pieces about uh, much of this research for the past four or five years. And oftentimes when I would do so, I would then hear from patients they would call me, they would email me, and they would say, you know, I suffer from Crohn's disease, or I suffer from Lou Gehrig's disease, and I've been using marijuana therapeutically, and I've been seeing in my own life the sort of results that you reported on in this clinical study or in this preclinical study. And they wanted to know more. They wanted to know if there was additional research going on. And most importantly, what they wanted to do was they wanted to begin an honest discussion with their physician. They wanted to tell their physician that they were using cannabis therapeutically and they wanted their physician's opinion on that, but oftentimes they did not know how to begin this discussion with their doctor. Or in some cases they actually had tried to begin the discussion with their doctor and their doctor said, I'm skeptical of what you're telling me. Bring me some published data to support what you're saying. And after hearing this time and time again and feeling for these individuals, I said, you know, somebody needs to compile this mountain of preclinical and clinical data that has been be has been emerging over the past five or six years for certain particular indications, put it in one place, summarize it objectively, link to the source material, and give these patients the ability now to go to their physician and say, look, I suffer from this clinical indication. This is what the scientific literature says about the use of cannabinoids for it. So what I did was I compiled 15 specific indications and then went through the large, vast body of scientific literature that has been published on the therapeutic use of cannabinoids for these indications over the last five years and really put it in one user-friendly, convenient place so that patients can now present this to their physicians and begin this needed discussion. Now, Paul, I believe it was uh, perhaps two, three months ago, the FDA came out with a proclamation, if you will, saying that marijuana was not safe or effective. Is, is that about right? Uh, it was in April, I believe. April it was, okay. And, uh, and yet, all of these studies have been compiled. All of this data has been brought together. Uh, the drug czar still tours the nation and, in fact, the world, saying marijuana is every bit as dangerous as cocaine and heroin. Uh, your thoughts, sir, uh, what, 120 reports, what will it take to, to break this uh, propaganda machine? Well, certainly it won't be one additional uh, study or, or even a dozen. I mean, clearly there's going to have to be a mindset uh, that takes place, uh, a, a sort of a paradigm shift in this administration uh, would have to take place first. Uh, there are a couple of uh, points that really jump out at you when you begin reviewing the scientific literature as it pertains to uh, the therapeutic use of cannabinoids over the last few years. The first is that 
there is a whole lot of research taking place. If you go back about 25, even just 25 years, and do a search on Medline or some other search engine that peruses the scientific journals, and you do a keyword search, you want to discover uh, how many scientific articles were published on marijuana in, say, 1985, you'll get about 200, maybe 300 hits total. If you do that same search today, you'll get close to a 1,000 hits. So there's been this exponential increase in the study of marijuana. Much of that increase is due to studying cannabinoids for therapeutic purposes. The other thing you notice, unfortunately, is that most of this research is not taking place in this country. It's taking place overseas. It's often taking place in Europe. Sometimes it's taking place in the Middle East. Sometimes it's taking place in Asia. A little bit's taking place in Canada and a little bit in South America. But unfortunately, not a lot of it is taking place here. Clearly, that is a reflection, a poor one, I might add, of the administration's closed-minded or sort of flat-earth policy as it pertains to marijuana. The third point that, and this is what I really want to emphasize, is much of the research that is going on today is very different than the research that took place 20 and 30 years ago. Uh, most of your audience is aware of initial trials showing that cannabinoids may hold potential symptomatic relief for certain ailments. What do I mean by that? I mean, for instance, if someone is undergoing cancer chemotherapy and they are feeling nauseous, uh, they are aware that cannabinoids or marijuana, particularly when it's inhaled, may help to alleviate temporarily that nausea. Or if someone is suffering from multiple sclerosis and they are suffering from the spasms associated with it, that using marijuana may temporarily help to alleviate the severity of those spasms. Uh, but we are talking about symptomatic relief. We are not talking about taking a substance and having it actually alter the progression of the disease. If you look at much of the research that is being done now, we are actually no longer talking about symptomatic relief, but in fact we are talking about the ability of cannabinoids to manipulate disease progression and in many cases to actually curb disease progression, which in my mind is a much more significant and broader application of the medical use of marijuana. And we're seeing this over and over again in certain families of diseases, primarily neurological diseases like Alzheimer's disease or Lou Gehrig's disease. And we're also often seeing it in autoimmune disorders like MS, like inflammatory bowel disease, like diabetes. Uh, often cases, these are diseases where there are no standard accepted medications on the market to uh, slow down the progression of these diseases. But in the case of cannabinoids, oftentimes they seem to do so. Uh, and I think that is a very important point for people to understand now. We are not talking about treating symptoms. We're actually potentially talking about treating the disease itself. Thank you for that, Paul. Uh, we are speaking with Mr. Paul Armentano of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Uh, I mentioned earlier uh, the FDA and the people 
uh, hearing the pronouncements of the drugs are. People want to believe in some sort of authority, and I think these guys get way too much credence. I want to read you real quick from today's New York Times. FDA has faulted for a drug safety process. The nation's system for approving and monitoring the safety of medicines is inadequate and needs far-reaching reforms, and the Food and Drug Administration is plagued with poor management and persistent internal squabbling. Uh, this is uh, a report issued by the Institute of Medicine. Uh, Paul, you guys work across the country trying to educate people, trying to uh, uh, bring about the impetus to help change these marijuana laws. Let's talk about normal for a second. Okay. No, I, I, tell us about normal. Okay, sure. Uh, well, as many people know, normal has been in existence since the early 1970s. It was formed at that time really as an outgrowth of the Schaefer Commission report, which at that time was a presidential, uh, presidentially commissioned report um, that was submitted to Congress by an expert panel to advise Congress on how they should regulate uh, marijuana. And at that time... The Schaefer Commission actually recommended a concept that is now referred to as decriminalization. Uh, they recommended to Congress that they institute a nationwide policy where the simple possession of marijuana by adults, uh, the cultivation of marijuana for personal use, and the nonprofit transfer of marijuana by adults would not be subject to criminal penalties, but if there were any penalties, there would be a civil fine, and that is how the country would deal with marijuana. As people well know, uh, Congress ignored that recommendation. They actually scheduled marijuana under the Federal Controlled Substances Act as a Schedule One prohibited drug, uh, which is the most stringent category you can place a drug. This is the same category where, for instance, heroin is currently scheduled. Um, and by doing so, Congress was stating that marijuana had no accepted medical use in treatment. It could not be prescribed by a doctor and that any possession or use of it would be criminally punished. Uh, normal at its founding... Uh, believed that, in fact, Congress and the nation should have gone forward with the recommendations put forth by the Schaefer Commission and also, on another tier, argued that marijuana should be rescheduled or downscheduled so that a physician, if they so wished to, uh, could prescribe it just like they could prescribe literally thousands of other uh, medications. And they took that message uh, mostly to the states. And you saw over the next 20 uh, or 30 years, uh, we've got now just shy of a dozen states that have decriminalized the simple possession of marijuana by adults, uh, whereby those adults are no longer subject to criminal penalties nor arrest. Instead, at most, they face a fine. And we've also seen in the most recently uh, the taking off of the medical marijuana movement, uh, whereby we now have 11 states where under a physician's recommendation, a doctor can recommend a patient use and possess marijuana for therapeutic purposes, and they do not face state criminal penalties. Um, so at this point, much of normal focus still remains on those two issues, allowing patients uh, to have legal access to marijuana and 
allowing a, the a, adults who use marijuana recreationally or for their own personal use and they use it responsibly, we do not believe they should um, face criminal penalties either. Well, there are many uh, types of initiatives that are going to be on uh, various ballots across the country this this fall, uh, making uh, medical uh, excuse me making marijuana the lowest law enforcement priority. Or, uh, for instance, those folks in uh, uh, Colorado will uh, have the chance to legalize one ounce. Uh, I think the the same holds true in Nevada. And yeah, the the drugs are or. The representatives of government go out and try to bully the the voters, try to convince them that they've got to maintain this prohibition. Your, your thoughts on that? Well, uh, you're right. Certainly federal officials do do that, and you are also right that, in fact, there will be several opportunities, uh, both on the state and local level, for voters to vote in favor of policies that would liberalize marijuana laws in their jurisdictions. Uh, look, if history is any marker, uh, we know that when given the opportunity, most Americans vote in favor of liberalizing marijuana laws, regardless of the efforts of the federal government or federal officials that oftentimes come from Washington, D.C. to these local areas and try to tell people how to vote. One of the most interesting things, and this goes back some years now, but when there was polling in California prior to the passage of Proposition 215, uh, their medical marijuana law, one of the most interesting things we discovered was that almost a third of the individuals polled said they knew about the medical benefits of marijuana because of either first-hand or second-hand experience. Either they'd used it medically or they had a friend or family member who had used it medicinally. And let me tell you, the drug czar can squawk, the DEA can go and send its henchmen in the Colorado and say that marijuana is 500 times more potent today <laughs> than it was five years ago. The bottom line is, is that that sort of rhetoric does not trump people's first-hand and second-hand experience with marijuana. And that's why when they have the opportunity, whether it's in Colorado, to vote to eliminate criminal penalties for the possession of up to an ounce of marijuana, or whether it's in South Dakota, when they have the opportunity this fall to vote to allow doctors to recommend marijuana to their patients and allow those patients not to face criminal penalties in that state. That is why when they have that opportunity, regardless of what the drug czar says and regardless of what Washington says, nine times out of ten, in fact, our winning percentage is even higher than that, but, you know, more than nine times out of ten, the voters, the majority of voters vote in favor of reform and they ignore the drug czar. And I'm confident that this fall, uh, voters are going to do the same thing that they've done in the past. I, I'm sure they will. The, it's it's hard to trump uh, knowledge, and a lot of people have that that, as you say, first and second hand knowledge. Well, we are about out of time. Uh, once again, we're speaking with Paul Armentano of the uh, National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Paul, uh, give him your website, please. Sure, it's www.norml.org, and the report that Dean had referenced earlier, you, people can actually access on the front page. It's called Emerging Clinical Applications for Cannabis and Cannabinoids, and as I said, it actually summarizes the research that's been published over the last five years, looking at 15 different indications, including 
including uh, glioma, fibromyalgia, Alzheimer's disease, Lou Gehrig's disease, osteoporosis, arthritis, a whole host of them. I really encourage people to check it out. And I also encourage people to uh, vote this fall, particularly if they are in a state or locality that has a marijuana reform initiative on the ballot, and there are several. You can read a summary of all of those efforts on our website as well. Uh, Paul, thank you so much. Thank you, Dean. Thanks for having me. Some questions sound simple. For example, how many crimes are drug-related? Only six words, which really contain three different questions. Specifically, how many crimes are A, committed under the influence of alcohol or other drugs, B, committed to get money for drugs or simply get drugs, and or C, committed as a result of a drug trafficking dispute, in other words, caused by prohibition. The first two are tough, in part because we're not doing enough drug testing at offender intake, believe it or not. The Justice Department terminated its arrestee drug abuse monitoring program a couple of years ago. Without special funding, some departments have simply stopped gathering the data. Still, researchers from Justice estimate that more than half of all jail and prison inmates are dependent on or abuse alcohol or other drugs. All of these questions are difficult to answer because we catch so few offenders. The FBI reports that fewer than 50% of violent crimes are ever cleared by an arrest and fewer than 20% of all property crimes are cleared. This has been the case for years. Answers to these questions are also obscured because what data we do have is either offender self-report or law enforcement opinion, either of which can be biased. Some offenders may want to qualify for a treatment alternative to incarceration, which means they need to have a substance abuse problem, while at least some in law enforcement use the menace of drug problems to justify more powers and bigger budgets. Arguably, we may be catching a lot of addicts and drug users who commit crimes because doing alcohol or other drugs can make people slow and stupid enough to get caught, but that's sheer conjecture with no data to back it up. Here, however, is what we do know. According to the FBI's newly issued Uniform Crime Report for 2005, there were 14 million criminal arrests for all offenses other than simple traffic violations in 2005. Of those, 1.84 million were drug abuse violations. 1.6 million were for all property crimes combined. And 603,000 were for all violent crimes combined. Keep these numbers in mind the next time police tell you they can't find the person who stole your computer or mugged your grandmother. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh, editor of DrugWarFacts.org. And now for another black perspective on the drug war. Does the United States government import drugs into our black communities? To many people, the idea is monstrous, unthinkable. But there is credible evidence that it does. And there are many people who believe it. I don't know for sure, but the idea is far from unthinkable. The American government has tremendous power and a long history of reluctance to use that power for the benefit of black people. The country that saved Europe from the Nazis was impotent to help Rwanda, does nothing in Sudan, and sat on its hands for nearly a week before sending aid to Louisiana. The government that subsidizes its vital industries to promote domestic stability, like agribusiness, automobile manufacturing, and airlines, including tens of billions of dollars to compensate for the four planes lost on 9-11, is powerless to alleviate the poverty of the inner cities. I don't know for sure that the government is bringing drugs into the black communities, 
But I do know that it is not bringing industry to the black communities, where good jobs that pay a decent living wage would pay the dividend of reducing crime, drug abuse, and death. And if investing tax dollars in helping black Americans is too unthinkable, then I say just end drug prohibition that creates the crime and the violence in our communities and get out of our way. We can lift ourselves up. We've done it before in spite of Jim Crow. And we can certainly do it again. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Phil Jackson. Thank you for that report, Phil and Doug. Uh, be sure to join us on this week's Cultural Baggage when our guest will be Gary Bernson. He's the uh, field commander, CIA guy who led the attack on bin Laden and al-Qaeda. And uh, I want to welcome our new affiliate, number 64, WAIF in Cincinnati, Ohio. You know, you are the solution. Uh, you are the only solution. I can flap my gums all week long. It's just not going to do us any good. But uh, unless and until you dare to speak this same truth, it's just going to continue. So I, I guess what I'm really wanting you to do, take a visit to our website, which is end prohibition.org there you can join up with normal or mpp or the drug policy alliance or about a dozen others um and and it's it's up to you to dare i mean that's that's the whole point i'm trying to make here and uh, please visit our uh, other website where I have hundreds of these uh, radio programs available online featuring judges, congressmen, doctors, scientists, lawyers, and many others who have time and experience in the drug war and whose opinions we should believe. And as always, you know, I, I remind you that there is no truth, justice, logic, or scientific fact involved. We have been duped. The drug lords run both sides of this equation. Prohibido istak ivalesco. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Dean Becker asking you to examine our policy of drug prohibition, the century of lies. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston.